Tonight, I would like to speak about effort and diligence. Effort and diligence. Um, There's a term in Pali called virya. And that's the term that's usually translated as effort. Sometimes this is translated as energy, but it comes from the, this um, virya is connected to the root of virile, and it, it, it refers to this kind of manly courage or wholeheartedness. And there's a quality of dedication and um, persistence perseverance that comes in um, this quality of virya. Very often you'll see it translated as courageous effort because it's not just a doing something. There's a quality of heart in the doing of it. There's a quality of courage, of wholeheartedness. Often when um, I, I speak about effort, and use that term effort, I find there are always some students who don't like the term effort, that it seems a little bit too demanding, like work, or that it's somebody like a school teacher demanding, make the effort, try harder, pay attention. I think many people prefer more of the terms of wholeheartedness, courage, or even on the other end of the scale of non-effort, ease, and openness. Sometimes we resist the strength of effort and yet simultaneously are attached to the fruits of our efforts. It's sort of a strange contradiction in the human mind that there can be a resistance to hard work and yet a deep attachment to the way that work structures our lives and our identity. Effort in spiritual practice is sometimes talked about as a kind of work. Have you ever used the phrase, I'm doing inner work or work on myself? Sometimes people will envision uh, meditation as being work on ourselves. Though sometimes also there can be a real connection with that heart quality, that dedication, that inspiration and joy that's really not so much working on ourselves, but is simply a deep and open commitment to awakening, to the complete and full flowering of our spiritual life that doesn't feel quite so labor-intensive. When the Buddha was dying, one of the last teachings that he gave was he said, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Work out your liberation with diligence. And these were among the last teachings that he gave was this strong encouragement to work out your liberation with diligence. So there's clearly a need for effort on this path. And there are some things that need to be worked out, some work that needs to be done. So it's helpful to clear up any wrong attitudes that we may have towards effort and to free our minds from the resistance that restricts the full flowering of our own courage of heart and our own um, opening to the energy that's available in practice. 
How many people have heard of um, many Buddhist lists on Thursday nights here? Have you gotten many lists? Have you gotten like the four foundations of mindfulness or the seven factors of enlightenment or the five hindrances or the five spiritual faculties or the five spiritual powers or the five preconditions for insight or the four noble truths or the eightfold path? There are a lot of lists. And when they do these charts of all of the lists, you know the factor that comes up most frequently on those lists is effort. It's not mindfulness or concentration. The factor that comes up most frequently is actually effort. Now, I'm not sure that that means it's the most important factor, but I think it demands that we give some attention to this factor, that we consider effort how, it, how does it function as one of the factors of success, of success? How does it function as one of the five spiritual faculties? How does it function as one of the seven enlightenment factors? How does it function as one of the eight, one of the eight in the eightfold noble path? I don't think we can get away from this quality of virya, either in the practicality of our sitting practice or when we undertake an understanding of this dharma path. It's true, though, that some people approach effort with so much force that that striving, that force that almost judgmental quality entangles us in a kind of tension and that we then assume that effort involves tension, that effort involves that contraction that we sometimes feel when we are trying so hard because we've got to do it right. And then we can react against that tension that we associate with effort. But I I have found that although some people do over-effort in their practice and do habitually over-effort in many activities in life, in the time I've been teaching, I've seen more problems with lack of effort than with over-efforting. More problems with that holding back, that laziness, that kind of like half or only partial commitment. There can be a quality of zeal and um, interest and ardency that comes with effort that doesn't need to be tension and striving. There's so much more that we can actually do to bring peace to our lives if we simply bother to do it, if we do the work that needs to be done in our spiritual life. There's a story about some birds in England. Um, Do you remember the days, they they still do this in England where they actually have milk delivered? Did anybody grow up having milk delivered to your house here? Yeah, do you still get milk delivered to your house? I don't know anybody who still gets milk delivered to their house here. But um, what these birds did in England is the birds, they liked the cream at the top of the milk. And you know, there'd be those little kind of foil lids Well, the birds had figured out how to pop the lids off the bottles. So when the milkman would put the milk by the door, the birds would come by and pop the lid off the bottle and eat the cream. And they really liked it. 
But of course, the people didn't like that. And so they would put, they started to put, um, have the, the milk, the milk delivery person put a towel over the bottles of milk. Now, one bird was too small to remove the towels, but what they started to do is the birds would work as a team. And three or four of them would pick up the corners of the towel and slip it off the bottles. And then they could eat their cream. And when that, so then what the people started to do is they built these wooden boxes. And the milk delivery person would put the bottles in the box and then put down this, um, this wooden um, lid and latch it. And that was just a little bit more than the birds could handle. But what they did is that then when the milkman would go to deliver the bottles, the birds would come into the truck and feast in the truck. And I like that story because it showed a quality of persistence, a quality of willing to try and try and try again. And whatever obstacles the people set up, they would figure out some way to still reach their aim to accomplish what they wished. And I think they were quite clever, but primarily they were determined to find a way. And I think we need a quality of determination in our practice simply to sit every day, to maintain a daily meditation, or to come to monthly day-longs, or to carve out time in the hectic busyness of our lives to actually go to a retreat. These commitments require effort. They require a discipline in order to maintain them and a willingness to sacrifice some comfort on this path of awakening. And this commitment, though, doesn't have to be a heavy, oh, God, I just have to do this now. It can actually be a source of inspiration and joy. It can bring clarity and ease in our minds and in our hearts as we know and are aligned with what really matters to us when our energy is aligned with what we are deeply committed to, what we are dedicated to, then effort doesn't seem to be a heavy task in life. It seems to be much more a quality of wholeness and wholeheartedness. A quote from Mother Teresa. What we need is to love without getting tired. How does a lamp burn? Through the continuous input of small drops of oil. What are these drops of oil in our lamps? They are the small things of daily life. Faithfulness, small words of kindness, a thought for others, our way of being silent, of looking, of speaking, and of acting. Sometimes it's the quality of presence that we bring to the small things that really matter. Sometimes it's the commitment just to sit down or just to wake up or to simply begin again or to hear a sound and to know that we're hearing or to take a breath and to feel the sensations of the breath. Our daily practice may be those small drops of oil in the lamp of love and the lamp of enlightenment. To decide, okay, I'm going to meditate. And to just sit down, to take some time to be quiet and see what happens. 
that is part of the dedication. It isn't to try and make something happen as we're meditating. That is applying too much effort. That's trying to control the outcome. The effort that we need is to get ourselves to the quiet seat and to sit down with some intention to be awake. We don't have to force ourselves to meditate. We don't have to force ourselves to be aware. And we don't need to get concentrated when we're meditating. We don't need to make ourselves have an insight in order to have a sense that we're doing a practice. We can just sit down and be quiet and be present for whatever is unfolding. And that's not so difficult. That doesn't require a quality of striving and forcing and tension in the mind. Effort is not something that is static. We don't just make a single decision, okay, now I'm going to be mindful for the whole rest of my life. Or now I am going to just try to be aware and expect that we'll just abide in some kind of a state of, of, of wakeful, sparkling insight. There's a skill, and it's a practical skill, that is how do we apply our energy to being present? How do we apply our effort to wake up? Do you ever intentionally adjust the quality of your effort in the middle of a meditation? Perhaps sometime if you're feeling sleepy, you may actually rev up the energy a little bit. You may actually say, okay, I'm really going to pay attention to this breath. I really want to experience the very beginning of this breath or the very ending of the breath. And we, we, we almost um, put a little fire in the practice that way. Sometimes you may find yourself a little bit restless and you intentionally drop back, or you might find yourself forcing the attention on the breath or on whatever the object is so much that you know you're manipulating it. You know you're trying to make something happen. It's almost like um, we're, we're watching it instead of feeling it, or we're moving towards it rather than receiving the moment. And so sometimes when you feel that pushing that, that, that extra effort, you can just drop back and release a little bit of the tension around the effort. In the beginning of our practice, many, be, many people, when they first begin to um, pay attention to something as subtle as the breath or the sensations in the body and develop mindfulness, often there isn't a lot of skill at first with the effort factor. And sometimes we just dull out because we can't quite find the breath and we don't know how to collect the energy to use it in a focused way. Or we get so focused that we lose connection with a broader spectrum, what's called clear comprehension of knowing the context that we're in. And a fair amount of the early years of practice is learning to be skillful and to adjust this factor of effort in our own practice. And that's, we have to adjust it for ourselves. You, you know, because when you're sitting there, you don't actually know if somebody's restless 
or if they're sleepy. Well, I guess sleepy sometimes is obvious. But um, but it's something quite subtle that you start to sense. What is the relationship with the object of meditation? And how is the effort involved in that relationship? Is it a skillful effort that keeps me connected? Or is it falling short or pushing in? And so one of the things that you keep adjusting is simply that effort. But it's also important to have realistic aims with our effort. Because if we're trying to be mindful 24-7, every day, every minute of every day, we may have a goal that is not quite appropriate. If we compare ourselves to a concept of perfection, it can set us up for failure. Where Rather than simply, can I take the next step mindfully? Can I take the next breath mindfully? Oh, I'm lost in thought. Can I feel this moment now as I'm sitting here? Jack Kornfield often tells a story of practicing with um, the, t- the Thai master Ajahn Chah in um, northeastern Thailand. And Ajahn Chah was sometimes accused of being contradictory in his teaching, where he would tell one person one thing and then the next person something else. And Jack confronted him one time and he said, you just said the opposite thing to the monk yesterday. Why are you telling me now to do this? And Ajahn Chah said, he said, it's like this. There is a road that I know very well, but it can be foggy and dark sometimes. When I see somebody traveling this road about to fall in a ditch and get lost on the side of the track on the right-hand side, I call out, go to the left, go to the left. Similarly, if I see someone about to fall in a ditch or get lost on a side track on the left-hand side of the track, I call out, go to the right, go to the right. And that's all I do when I teach Wherever you get caught, I say, let go of that. That's a simple application of effort. To keep coming back to the middle. To keep letting go of whatever sidetrack we get ourselves on. To keep releasing whatever attachments we find ourselves entangled with. There was a great story in the um, sutras where the Buddha... um, Um, one of his disciples was named Venerable Sona. And Venerable Sona um, tried very hard in his practice. He was really quite diligent in terms of of really going for it, going for it, going for it. But there was one point when his conviction really started to weaken and he started to falter. And he was... um, I mean, he wasn't a lazy monk. In fact, he was doing so much walking meditation that the skin on the soles of his feet were cracked and bleeding. And he was sitting there looking at his bleeding feet one day, thinking, I try. I do this practice. I'm arousing effort. I'm ardent in my practice. Even though I'm putting forth my best efforts, I'm still not free from craving and clinging. I haven't found peace. I haven't found enlightenment. And then he started to think, looking at his bleeding feet, he thought, hmm, my family has wealth. It would still be possible for me to return home and enjoy that wealth. 
And I could also do good service. I could do good deeds. I could make merit by giving alms to the other monks. Perhaps I ought to leave the order of bhikkhus and return to lay life because this practice just isn't working for me. So he had these thoughts. And the Buddha, through the Buddha's power, um, perceived the doubts in Venerable Sona's mind and magically appeared before the Venerable Sona and asked Venerable Sona, and what have you been thinking, Venerable Sona? And then Venerable Sona told the Buddha about all of these thoughts of walking back and forth and having his feet bleeding and trying very hard and still not accomplishing the aim and thinking that maybe he should simply return to lay life and accrue more merits. And the Buddha responded by teaching Sona a a lesson on effort. And he said, Sona, when you were a house dweller, did you play the vena, the the, the stringed instrument that they call the vena? And he said, yes, Lord, I did play the vena. And the Buddha asked him, well, when the strings of the instrument were very taut, were too taut, was your vena in tune and playable? And Sona said, no, it was not playable. And then he said, when your, the strings of your vena were too loose and were very slack, was your instrument in tune and playable? And Sona said, no, Lord, it was not playable. And then the, the Buddha said, and when the strings of your instrument were neither too taut nor too loose, but established to be on the right pitch, was that, was that instrument playable? Oh, yes, Lord, it was playable then. In the same way, Sona, the Buddha said, over-aroused effort leads to restlessness. Overly slack effort leads to laziness. Thus, you should determine the right pitch for your persistence, the right pitch for your efforts. Attune the pitch to the five faculties and there pick up your theme. And thereafter, Venerable Sona was able to adjust the quality of his effort, sometimes tightening it up and sometimes releasing and relaxing back. And through that adjustment of the effort, as Venerable Sona learned to tune his own meditation the way that he had tuned the stringed instrument, he ended up realizing enlightenment in a very short time. This this ability to tune the instrument of our meditation our relationship to what we're experiencing, to tune our mind-body process, is part of what we learn as we're meditating, so that we learn to stay present for the sensations of the breath, the sensations of the body, the moods and emotions and thoughts in the mind, and also the spaces between those objects, so that an awareness pervades our experience, and stays clear and present. Reflect for a moment on your own practice. Are there times when you find resistance, drag, that kind of quality that holds you back? What do you find blocks the arising of a full and easeful vigilance?
in what ways might, be, might you be offering less than 100% to your own presence? I think it's important to learn what saps our energy, what diminishes our commitment, so that we can confront those obstacles directly. For some people, it's thoughts in the mind. There can be self-deprecating, self-judgmental thoughts, perhaps self-doubt, something like, I can't do this, um, or I don't deserve this rapture, or I can't open to this feeling. For others, it can be an attachment to comfort and to pleasure or an attachment to the familiar patterns and ways that we do things, an attachment to our own sense of who we already have decided we are in this world. Sometimes if we're quite attached to the comfort, if the external conditions are not conducive, are not comfortable, are not to our liking, then we tune out. We don't want to be present for them. Or we decide that it's just too hard to be present. And so we space out. We go into fantasy. We'll need the diligence in order to be present in those conditions that conform to what we like as well as those conditions that we don't like. We'll need vigilance and diligence to be present in adverse situations. Because actually in practice, we don't need specialized conditions for practice. We don't need total silence, complete comfort, 72 degrees or 68 degrees or whatever your favorite degree is. It's possible to be aware at 58 degrees, and it's possible to be aware with traffic sounds, it's possible to be aware when we're tired, it's possible to be aware when we're... um, uncomfortable. Eventually, we find a way of being, a quality of effort that allows us to be mindful of any condition, anything at all. Sometimes um, practice in the United States can get very comfortable, and we think we need all these things in order to be mindful or to get concentrated, or to be aware, or to meditate. But actually, we don't need anything at all. But perhaps effort, perhaps some commitment, some interest to turn the attention to being awake in that situation. Sometimes um, I go to these national parks. I like to walk in nature. And I'll see trees growing in the middle of rocks. And I was just teaching in Durango, Colorado, and I went hiking um, the day before the teaching in this, um, it was up where this, near a ski basin. And they were rocks. I mean, no dirt, nothing. They were just trees growing in rock. And it's just an amazing thing to see these trees growing in rock because you know it wouldn't have been the place that they would have chosen to be planted. And it can't be easy. And yet there's this persistence, there's this this perseverance that they just continue to grow slowly. But they do grow. And we don't know where our growth will be. We don't know where our liberation will occur. It may be for some of us that the greater growth comes 
when we are in conditions that we don't like and that are obstacles for us. It may be for some of us that the opening occurs when we're relaxed and feeling safe and comfortable and um, at ease. But we don't know. And so not knowing when the insights will arise, when um, awakening may occur, then why not simply be aware in all situations, in all conditions? My guru, Punjaji, used to say, meditate always, meditate constantly. And I often thought this was a very interesting thing for him to say because he also didn't give the same advice to everybody. He would tell the next person, don't meditate. Then he would say, meditate constantly, don't meditate. Does it sound like a contradiction? Well, actually, it's not a contradiction because if we conceive of practice um, as being something we do for 45 minutes during the day and we put meditation into time, then then meditation becomes a postponement of our freedom. It becomes something that we've contained and conceptualized. Freedom cannot be defined in time. It cannot be limited by those constraints. There are a few rare beings who, when hearing about the possibility of enlightenment, their minds open just by hearing that possibility. Certainly, as I read the teachings of the Buddha, there were many people who heard the Buddha speak, and then their hearts and minds opened. They were released from suffering simply by hearing those teachings. But for almost everybody that I've met, some kind of process that involves effort and diligence is actually needed. And then, at some point, the wakefulness, the opening, occurs spontaneously and effortlessly, and all grasping is released. When Punjaji told me to meditate constantly... I had to find a quality of effort that could be sustained constantly because any effort that's based in the self-centered mind can't be constant. Constant means waking and sleeping. Constant means pleasant and unpleasant. It means throughout all the experiences of life. It couldn't be limited by time and it couldn't be dependent upon anything that was impermanent. That changed. It couldn't just be an effort that I could do when I was wake, when I would, when I had had enough sleep and had had enough food, and was healthy. The quality of meditation that he was pointing to went beyond those conditions, so that it could be constant. It was a practice beyond concepts and beyond mind where a natural awareness is continuously available. The Buddha said, work out your liberation with diligence. Strive on untiringly. Do you ever wonder if there's a contradiction between effort and discipline and grace and ease? Again, on the surface, they might sound like they're quite um, opposite. But my, my Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus, said, no one can do it for you, yet you can't do it for yourself. 
And I think this holds a sense of that um, complexity. Ramana Maharshi, a great Indian um, saint, said, practices bring a seeker to the guru, and then the guru does the rest. It's not a surrender that abnegates responsibility, but it's a surrender that requires full commitment, complete dedication, total responsibility. That quality of complete devotion and dedication that is as full, if not more full, than any practice contained in time. Poonjaji used to often tell a story about practices. And he would say, what effort do you need to drop something? What effort do you need to drop something? Any object which comes on your head, he'd say, simply shake it off. And then he'd say, there was a man who had a hundred kgs of rock piled on his head and he was had to carry this burden in the summer's heat. And he went to another man and asked for some help. And the other man said, here, take these 10 kgs of iron. Iron is better than rock. And so he added 10 kgs of iron on top of the rock. And the man continued to walk in the heat and came to a second person and said, can you help me? Please, can you help me with this burden? And the other man gave 10 kgs of brass, saying, oh, the brass is better than both iron and rock. And so now he's carrying 120 kgs. And then he worked, walked further down the road, burdened by the this weight. And he came to a third person, and the third person gave him 10 kgs of silver, silver being better. Poonjaji said, so it is. Wherever you go, they will load some weight on your head, some weight in your mind. And he would encourage people, rather than to keep adding more precious weights to our spiritual practice, let's just shake off the problem. Let's just release ourselves from the causes of suffering. So, we can consider in our practice, what is it that we're doing? Are we increasing our burden? Or can we practice in a way that helps us simply release the burden, that shakes off the suffering? Some people tell me that they have too much stress to meditate. I always like that reason. There's something kind of amusing about that, isn't it? Too stressful to meditate. Life is too stressful to meditate. I sometimes wonder why is effort listed so often in all of those lists? And I think it may be because without this factor of effort, without the willingness to risk, to make some effort in our spiritual life, there's really very little hope of transforming our situation. The path of awakening does require diligence and it requires persistence. It's like the steady pace of an elephant's walk, not hurried and yet not hesitant. We don't rush into our practice demanding that we get enlightened instantly. And yet, 
we so we give it time there's a quality of persistence and yet we also don't hold the concept it's going to take 10,000 lifetimes for me i'm never going to get this there's also the possibility of shaking that burden off our heads so effort that is not demanding that is not controlling effort that instead is simply consistent and filled with ease may be the most helpful we need outer efforts that we make the discipline of the sitting the way we, we structure our practice and we need the inner commitments sometimes when we think of effort very often there's a duality that's set up practices that require effort and practices of non-effort practices where enlightenment takes many lifetimes and practices where you hear about enlightenment and are instantly enlightened but non-effort is not the ultimate goal in practice it's just the other side of a duality and when as we find that we can shake the the burden off our heads and sometimes we can do that instantly and sometimes we may have to shake several times we may have to engage in some form of practice to release ourselves from the burdens and the sufferings of our lives i'd like to end with a verse by ramana Ra- ramakrishna um ramakrishna was an indian saint and he um worshiped um kali this great mother great mother kali he said god is realized simply by following the path of truth never remain satisfied with anything less than truth the commitment to what is true deteriorates subtly as one becomes a slave to social and religious conventions spit on public opinion orient solely to divine reality and attempt to please mother alone no doubt one needs to make precise spiritual efforts and for this purpose traditional practices are useful one uses a sandalwood fan to generate a fragrant breeze on a sultry night perhaps even dipping it in water for greater coolness thus we fast and keep vigil repeating the glorious divine names counting them with prayer beads or on our fingers singing them to the accompaniment of drums and cymbals we also practice simplification of desires and occasionally retire into seclusion to remain make room for selfless love just as the expert fisherman throws spiced bait into the deep lake to attract the larger fish but the man-made fan is joyfully set aside when the strong cool southern breeze blows from the ocean bearing the delicious perfume of many flowers every sense of personal effort then comes to an end Let's sit for just a couple of minutes and let those words settle and then we'll see if there's some discussion.